0: Round two. (laughs) Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see familiar faces and some new faces. Thank you for being here today. May we and all beings have the strength to sit upright. May we and all beings have the confidence to just keep going. May we and all beings have ceaseless, limitless trust in ourselves, just who we are in this moment. This morning, we begin a new series of talks, a mini series, if you will, on the three refugees which we recite at the end of Tea and Discussion every Sunday. Buddhaṃ Saranam Gacchami, take refuge in the Buddha. Dhamam Saranam Gacchami, take refuge in the Dharma. Sangam Saranam Gacchami, take refuge in the Sangha. And this morning I wanna talk about the first of these three refugees taking refuge in the Buddha. What does it mean to take refuge and in the Buddha in particular? And also what sort of things get in the way of this practice of taking refuge? and how we might work with what gets in the way. We just finished a series of talks on the hindrances, the things that get in the way, which are also our way. And I'd like to keep that idea going for a little while. So what does it mean to take Sarana Gamana in Pali? Well, the word sarana, it turns out, refers to a shelter, a sanctuary, some place of peace and safety. And the word gamana means the act of returning. So one way of thinking about taking refuge is returning to a place of protection, a shelter, a place where you feel safe, perhaps from dangers that might be imminent or off in the distance. The Latin word refugere, from which we get the word refuge in English means to flee or to fly back. So it has this element of escape to it. It's the middle of August, which is back to school season. For those of us that live in State College, you might've noticed a sudden influx of young people real delight to have back in our quiet little city. For them, perhaps coming here is a place of refuge, escaping their parents with whom they probably spent a good chunk of the summer. But I was thinking about young children in this context who might be going off to school this fall for the first time, kindergartners, first graders. And this image came to mind of a young child standing with their loved one out front of the school and maybe making it halfway to the front of the school, to the doorway, and then getting a little nervous, getting a little scared or turning around and running back to the loved one. They don't wanna go, grabbing onto their leg at the bottom of their shirt or something like that. The child in this moment is taking refuge and their loved one. They feel safe. They feel protected there. None of this is new, I take it. It's a pretty common idea, familiar to most of us. When it's stormy and there's great thunder outside, my cat runs under the bed. That's his place of refuge. Feel safe there. But it turns out that when we talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Sangha, we mean something a little bit more than this. Kobunchino Roshi, our lineage holder, writes the following in some of his lectures, which are contained in the volume, Embracing Mind. I spent some time with that this week. He writes, when you totally admit you are as you are and totally trust in being, this is the triple return to the three treasures. When you totally admit you are as you are and totally trust in being, This is the triple return, the taking refuge in the three treasures of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. A little bit later, he writes that this practice of taking refuge is having indestructible confidence in yourself. A limitless, ceaseless trust in your own self. And I found these descriptions rather striking for a number of reasons. First, it seems like this is quite a sharp departure of the child running back to their loved one that we were talking about just a moment ago. In part because the child is taking refuge in something else, the presence, the safety, the comfort of their loved one. Here, what Kobun is talking about is taking Refuge in you. There's also this idea of indestructible confidence or limitless, ceaseless trust in yourself, something that arguably the child does not have when they turn from walking towards the front gate and run back towards their parent, guardian, grandmother, grandfather. I also thought this seems like a pretty high bar. that i certainly don't meet that bar indestructible confidence in your own self i don't have that. anybody else here have that mm-hmm. well i feel like i'm in good company so we're not taking refuge in something else we're taking refuge in ourselves and when i realized that part of doing this is having this indestructible confidence and that I didn't have that. I started to wonder why. And I was reminded some weeks ago when we were in the middle of working through the hindrances, Andrea was here and she brought up this idea during the discussion of our favorite hindrance. What is it? And not favorite as in you're delighted when it shows up or maybe you are I don't know but the one that seems to show up a lot for you in your everyday life maybe it's aversion maybe it's attachment for me it's doubt doubt shows up a lot for me that's my favorite (laughs) weird choice of words but I kind of like it hindrance and not investigative doubt, this testing of the teachings that we're encouraged to do, but a kind of obstructive doubt. It's a distinction that Mato drew a little while ago. Something that gets in the way of new practicing. I'll say more about that a little later. For the moment, I want to turn to the second part of this idea of taking refuge in the Buddha and ask what that means. Some of you know I have a real fondness for a particular Zen teacher named Rev. Anderson. There are reasons for that. And so when I was reading, doing some research in preparation for this talk about what it means to take refuge in the Buddha, I came across what Reb had to say, and I thought I would share it with all of you this morning. I thought it really wrapped up nicely, this idea of taking refuge in the Buddha. Here's what Reb has to say. To take refuge in Buddha means to take refuge in what you really are. What you really are is already attained always, every moment. What you really are is Buddha. You don't have to work at what you are. Now part of what you are is what you think you are. But what you think you are is not all of what you are. It's just an aspect of what you are. So being Buddha means being unattached to your thoughts about what you are. If you think you are a worthy person or an unworthy person, not grasping those thoughts is Buddha. But in fact, being a person who has such thoughts is a necessary condition of realizing Buddha. I'd like to open this up a bit and go backwards. So here we go. This idea of being Buddha, being, being unattached to your thoughts about what you are, reminds me of a talk I gave some weeks ago where I mentioned the sixth ancestor and the Platform Sutra that they wrote and this idea of no thought or not thinking. Sometimes meditation practice is styled as one in which you're trying to not think. But as so many of us know here at OAN, we don't understand it in that way. Indeed, it's not possible to stop your thinking because the mind never stops being an open field of creativity. I'm rather fond of this image of the ocean. Sometimes the waves are big and many, your mind is racing this way and that way, like so many parents down in State College trying to do everything to get the kids moved in in a very short period of time. Oh my gosh, they are so frustrated. Other times your mind is very quiet when you find refuge here on Sundays and you sit facing the wall. Very few waves. But there's always activity. And when I talked about this some weeks ago, I advised just learn to surf the waves of your mind. When they're there, ride them and let them be there. And when they fade away, let them fade away. Paddle back out to catch the next one. There's nothing wrong with your mind being active. We just try not to get caught up in. Because when we get caught up, our perspective can start to narrow. We get very caught up in what we sometimes call a small self. Our narrative about who we are as Reb writes. What you think you are is not all of what you are. It's just an aspect of you, what you are. Sometimes we tend to think our, about ourselves in this way. that There's the whole world with all of the many things that are in it. Mountains and trees and puppies and pandas and red pandas, and jetliners and airplanes. And then there's this other thing in addition to the whole world. And that thing is me and I'm separate from the whole world. I've got my own little story about who I am and what I do, why I'm important why I'm not important. That there's a kind of contrast between myself and the world. It's not the case. I like to remind myself of this, that I'm so much bigger than the stories I tell about myself by recalling a passage from Alan Watts. He writes that there is no contrast of I and the world. There's just one process acting, unfolding, and it does everything that happens. The waves in the ocean, the blooming of flowers, the bustling of cars down a busy city street, me giving this talk right now, It raises my little finger, and it makes earthquakes. I take this grand perspective. I can realize that. Or, to put it another way, if you're so inclined, I raise my little finger, and I make earthquakes two perspectives on this one great process that's unfolding. You can look at the process as a whole, or you can look at yourself as part of the process from a particular point of view. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't like the fact that it also seems like I can make earthquakes. Mm -hmm. The part of me that likes action movies is very excited about that. And finally, this idea of taking refuge in Buddha means to take refuge in what you really are and that what you really are is already attained always in every moment. Reminds me of my favorite lines from Dogen Zenji, founder of the Soto Zen lineage. In the Genjo Kawan, Dogen writes that no creature ever falls short of its own completion. Wherever it stands, it does not fail to cover the ground. It's a rather poetic way of saying that at this very moment, sitting just where you are as you are right now, you are complete and you cannot fail to be so. I mentioned earlier that when it comes to this practice of taking refuge, in the Buddha and it's having to do with a kind of ceaseless, limitless trust in oneself that I don't have this because doubt often gets in the way for me. I've gotten in the habit at the beginning of every week of setting an intention for that week in my practice. What am I gonna focus on? How am I gonna orient myself? And not just setting the intention but then actually following through on the intention as well. It's one thing to say, I intend to sit, but then it's another thing if you end up laying around on the couch with your cat. And what came up as I was thinking about, okay, why do I doubt myself so much? Two things, this is about my practice. I don't know what comes up for you, but this is what comes up for me. The first is a fear of failure. I've been conditioned in such a way that I'm really terrified of not meeting whatever the expectations are, whatever the bars are, of falling short in some way. And I also have a real aversion to disappointing other people, to letting people down. And whether or not the story makes sense, the story that I tell myself as well, if I just don't have so much confidence in myself, if I'm self-deprecating, if I think I'm less than what I actually am, then I won't put myself in positions where I can fail. And I won't disappoint people. I hold myself back from realizing that I'm complete in this moment. And I didn't stop there, I decided to continue with this curiosity by asking, what's the thing behind these things? It's a phrase that a friend of mine, Jim, is quite fond of. Whenever you think you found the answer, what's behind that? Just keep going, keep looking. And here's the answer that I'm with so far. It has to do with the way in which perceived failures and moments of disappointment affect how I see myself and how others see me. The stories told about me and the stories that I tell about myself. The stories that I cling to, that I find comforting, even if those stories cause unnecessary suffering. There's something about familiar suffering that can be comforting in its own way. But having this realization only deepens my resolve to just keep sitting. Because I think that this is a terrific way for me to work with doubt, to cultivate trust, to transform faith into confidence. Here's something else I found from Coburn. Trust is contained in sitting. Stillness is another way to express what trust is. And though it's early days, I'm inclined to think that he's absolutely correct. There's something very important that happens when we reduce our activity to the smallest extent. When we fold our legs into a pretzel or sit on a bench or sit on a chair, face the wall and watch our stories play out like a film being projected on a movie screen. When I sit, I think I start to feel that indestructible confidence in myself arise. maybe someday I too, when the Buddha was being assailed with all sorts of doubts for Mara under the Bodhi tree, can touch the earth as an affirmation that I do deserve to be here and I do belong here. Thank you very much.